Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Matthew chapter 6, if you have a Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. I am super excited about the text this morning. This is a sneaky good text. Um, One of those texts at first reading where you're like, yeah, that's interesting. And then, man, and, and I was like, who assigned me this text? And I realized it was me. Because um, I was kind of dividing up the Matthew series. Um, but I, this week, I've just been so thrilled um, with what God has been speaking to me personally um, out of this text, and I trust we'll be able to encourage you guys with um, from, from, from this particular passage. Some of you uh, know that before I was in ministry, I was in, in, in business for many years and had the privilege of traveling around the world, setting up distribution networks for a big chemical company and traveled business class quite a bit. Um, but there was one moment that I will never forget in, in my particular travels, and that was I was on a, a flight back from Mexico City through London back to Johannesburg. And I walked up to the British Airways check-in counter, and they said these words over me, Mr. Sudworth, you'll be pleased to know that today we have seated you in first class. And literally, my immediate future changed forever. I I left that particular counter holding my first class ticket with a spring in my step. My, My shoulders were back. My head was held high. I noticed that I was even talking different. Um, I was traveling on a British passport at the time, and I thought it would be appropriate to speak a little more appropriately since I was traveling in in first class. Started using words like preposterous and and inconceivable because that would be appropriate for someone traveling in first class. And uh, perhaps most annoying to everyone around me except for me was my first class ticket became uh, uh, um, obvious for everyone to see. I may as well have plastered it on my forehead. It was so annoying. Um, I know that probably hundreds, if not thousands, of Chicagoans fly first class every month. Um, but for, from, for, for a, a person from where I was from, Mpangeni, South Africa, the small town on the east coast of South Africa, flying first class was news. I mean, it was, it was serious news. But, but best of all was the fact that I got access into the first class lounge. And I will tell you some of that story later. But there's a verse in the Bible, and not from the text that we're looking at, but you'll see where I'm going with this. There's a verse in the Bible in Paul's letter to the church in, in, um, in Ephesus, where he talks about being upgraded. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes this, God has raised us up in Christ, and he has seated us, not in first class, but he seated us in Christ in the heavenly realms. This, this, this reality of, of being seated in Christ, I think, is something that we as Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus, love to, love to use, but I don't know whether we actually know what that, what that means. The reality of what it means is, is although I'm not there yet, just like in, when I was given my first class ticket, I wasn't seated in the airplane, but my immediate future changed forever. Although I'm not physically seated in Christ in the heavenly realms, the moment I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, my eternal destiny changed forever. I started walking and talking like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I started to realize and live in the reality that I am God's beloved, that I am God's favorite, and that is true of me without making it any less true of you. And I know that doesn't make logical sense, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's the reality of being in Christ. And and best of all, I didn't have access just into a first-class lounge, but because I was seated in Christ, I have everlasting, always access into the presence of the one who made the heavens and the earth. 
that's the gospel. The gospel is the fact that my best will never qualify me and my absolute worst will never disqualify me because the way God receives me, the way I access God's presence is because I am in Christ. The thing that I want to repeat over and over again is simply this. My position in Christ, in Jesus, determines my practice here on earth. My position in Christ determines my practice here on earth. So that means, because even though I'm seated in Christ, while living here in Chicago, while living at 2852 North Damon and all that comes with that, I do so as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Some people say that the gospel is not behavior modification, and I get what is meant with that statement. The gospel is not some sort of outward compliance to a set of rules that hopefully changes our hearts, but it is a, it is a heart change, an inward transformation by the, the, the grace and goodness and mercy and love of Jesus that finds its way to be outworked into our lives to the point where we start to look and live like Jesus did. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And, and that's where this, the Sermon on the Mount comes in, this passage that we are looking at over these coming weeks. The Sermon on the Mount describes what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven, what it looks like for a heart to be transformed and for us to start to live like the person of Jesus Christ. We are in a series going all the way through till uh, Thanksgiving, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, chapters in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. And just to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to just remind us what the kingdom of God is. The, the kingdom of God is, is God's reign and rule through His Son, Jesus through the, 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 the influence and the government of Jesus. The, the kingdom of God impacts cities and neighborhoods and ultimately impacts entire countries, but it starts with individuals. It starts with a heart that is transformed by Jesus. And it finds its outworking as we surrender to Him. That's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. It describes what it looks like when a heart has been transformed by Jesus and we begin to follow God's word. I want us, with that in mind, with the, the, this idea of my position in Christ determines my practice here on earth, and with the context of the Sermon on the Mount being this, this kingdom that, is, that finds it's, it's, it's working in our hearts and eventually manifests outwardly, with, with that as the context, I want us to jump into this text that we're going to be looking at today, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. And Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not, left your, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, we're going we're gonna to take the next 20 or 25 minutes to, to unpack those four verses. So, so this is a little bit of a Bible study, but I, I trust it's going to have something of God's heart, something of God's prophetic edge to, to minister to every single one of us. So verse 1 starts off, Jesus, is, Jesus starts off with the words, be careful. Be careful. He's, he's warning us 
about something. He's warning us not to do something. And what he's, what he's warning us not to do is, is to make sure that we don't do kingdom things. We don't practice our righteousness, as some translations say, or we don't do charitable deeds or, or good works. We don't do those things for the wrong reasons. And the wrong reasons would be to do it in such a way that it appears to be a show or a performance for others to see. And he goes on to describe what happens if we end up doing these righteous works or these kingdom works, if we do them with the motive of being seen by others. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, if, if you do, if, if we do this, we will have no reward from our Father in heaven. Let me just pause there and, and just kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room. This verse 1 is, it introduces this most mind-blowing concept that we're going to get to later on in the sermon, but this idea that righteous works or good works are rewarded by our Father in heaven. Now, now that, I mean, that, that right there is just like, wow, that's, that's, a little, that's a little hard to grasp. You know, we, we're, a, we're a culture that believes in altruism. We, we do good things for the sake of doing good things. But, but as we're going to see later, Jesus is a far better, has a far better understanding of the human nature. That, that, that we... I don't want to preach my conclusion before I get started, but, but we want to be noticed. We want to be seen. But who do we look for to be noticed and to be seen? Anyway, that's coming later, so let me not get there. Je- Jesus is not saying don't do good works. Jesus is not saying don't do, don't do righteous things. Just look ahead. Drop your eyes down to verse 2. When you give to the needy. It's assumed. When, in verse 5, when you, or verse 6, I think it is, when you pray. When you fast, later on in verse 15, it's assumed that we are going to do righteous things. It's assumed that we're going to do kingdom works. Remember chapter 5 in this study through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. It's not wrong for our good deeds to be seen, but in in chapter 5, he carries on and explains why we should do these things so that your Father in heaven may be glorified. You see, Jesus wants us to do kingdom things, or he wants us to do righteous things for the right reasons. And the way we can make sure that is to ask a very simple question. The the kingdom things that I do, do they glorify me or do they glorify God? And that's a simple question that we can ask every time. Do the kingdom things that, that I'm wanting to do, do they glorify me or do they glorify God? Position in Christ, position in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. Position in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. You're going to hear that six or seven times throughout this sermon. And so essentially what is, what is happening right here is, is right position in Jesus. How do we obtain right position in Jesus? By grace, through faith, so that no one can boast. Right position in Jesus determines right practice here on earth. By grace through faith, so that I can't boast. We're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast, and we live that out through the things that we do by grace through faith so that I can't boast. It's God's desire that he get the glory, not we get the glory. 
So verse two carries on. Jesus says, so, so when you give to the needy, I, just to kind of stop for a moment, so I think one of the challenges that we face when we take a text like this and we, we kind of taking four verses out, we sometimes forget that it's in the context of an entire sermon, uh, five, six, and seven, three, three chapters, and we're taking four verses. And what we often do is we, 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 don't, we ignore what is still to come, and, and we forget what has already been discussed. So I want to take a quick few moments to remind us or show us what is coming because that provides the context and to remind us of what we've already covered because that'll help us in understanding these verses. Verse 2, when, when Jesus says, when you give to the needy, giving is the first of three spiritual disciplines that Jesus is going to tackle in the next 18 verses. You, you're going to see, uh, in, in, in this morning, we're going to look at giving or generosity, when you give to the needy. But next week, in verse 5, we're going to discuss prayer, and we're also going to discuss fasting. So the three spiritual disciplines that Jesus is using to speak to the Jews at the time is, is, is giving, generosity, prayer, and fasting. Now, now, if Jesus was preaching the Sermon at the Bean... Uh, sometime this year, it, he would probably do something completely different. He probably wouldn't tackle those particular spiritual disciplines. He, I, I, I thought maybe he might say, when you read your Bible, or, or when you share the gospel, or when you fellowship at church. The, the point being, Jesus chose three particular spiritual disciplines that were pertinent to the hearers in, in, of his day. And I want to say, just to make sure we know this, that doesn't mean that those three spiritual disciplines, giving, prayer, and fasting, aren't important to us. But Jesus isn't giving, essentially, a teaching on prayer and giving and fasting. He's essentially asking the question, why do we do these things? For your glory or for the Father's glory? That's essentially what Jesus is getting at. But to understand, so that we, so that we, to understand when you give to the needy without it feeling like performance, because it does feel a little like performance, Let, let's be honest. When you give to the needy, it feels a little bit like Jesus is saying, all right, you've got some things to do, which he is, but to make sure it's not a, a performance, a sense of we earning the blessing and the favor of God, we must remember what we've already discussed about the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and the most important thing that we can remember about the Sermon on the Mount is this, is that Jesus, when, when speaking about the sermon, he's not being prescriptive, he's being descriptive. He's not telling us how to obtain blessing, he's describing what the blessed people of God already look like. Can you recognize that distinction? So when he says in chapter 5, be blessed, and you are blessed if you are poor in spirit, etc., etc., he's not saying you need to do that in order to be blessed, he's saying because you are in the kingdom of God and are blessed, this is what the kingdom of God people in the kingdom of God look like. We are those who cling to his grace. We are those who walk alongside him through the dark valley. We are those who are come under his authority, those who hunger for him. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. My position in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. And that's how we are able to get around Jesus' audacious challenge in chapter 5 when he says, unless your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the professional law keepers, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How do we do that? By knowing that we are in Christ. My position in Christ determines my practice here on earth. But also, not only am I in Christ, but Christ is in me, his perfection. And his righteousness is in me. 
So when Jesus says, when you give to the needy, it's not a performance, but it's an outworking of Christ in me and me in Christ. Are you following? Are you, are you understanding where I'm, where I'm getting it? So, so just, just to, for a moment, we're going to take a step back and, and acknowledge that this is not Jesus' complete teaching on the subject of giving or generosity. So I, I want to take five minutes just to summarize what the Bible, what the New Testament in particular does teach about being generous and about, about giving. Firstly, we need to understand that the Bible doesn't talk about giving and getting, but rather sowing and reaping. The metaphor we need to have in our minds whenever we think about generosity in, in the kingdom of God is the metaphor of farming. Put yourself 50 miles south or, or west of us right now. You're in the middle of cornfields. Think of that as we go through. There you go, Whitney. Think, think of those cornfields, those massive cornfields that, that are around you forever. That's what we need to think of when we think of generosity in the scripture. Secondly, We don't sow seed, whether it's time or or gifting or finances. We don't sow seed because it's a bad thing to own seed. The Bible teaches we, we sow seed to get a crop or a harvest, to get to see fruitfulness, and here's this word again, to see reward. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. Essentially what I'm saying is we don't sow out of guilt or compulsion. Never sow into the kingdom of God out of a sense of guilt or compulsion. Thirdly, as you sow seed, it dies to you. As you sow time, as you sow finances, it needs to die to you. Otherwise, it will not be able to produce fruit. Jesus says in John chapter 12, Truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Sometimes, if we're honest, we sow seed with a string attached. We sow seed and don't see the immediate result, so we quickly haul it back and think to ourselves, well, that clearly didn't work. No, the seed, the thing that we are sowing needs to die to us. It's no longer ours. Which brings us to the next point. Waiting and trusting is required when sowing into the kingdom of God. We sow seed, it dies to us, and then we wait. And trust that God will bring about the harvest. And you know that is true for sowing financially, it's true for most things in the kingdom. It's true for prayer. It's true for, trust. it's true for trusting to see prophetic words come to pass. It's true for sharing the gospel. It's true for stepping out in faith. We don't often see instantaneous results. It's true for parenting. How many of you know that? The kingdom of God talks about sowing, letting it die to ourselves, waiting and trusting that God alone, which is my next point, God alone brings growth and fruitfulness. We need to be faithful to sow. God brings, does the rest. The next point to say is this, that the harvest often looks totally different to the seed that has been sown. We don't sow seed to get more seed. We sow seed to see fruitfulness. You don't give generously of your time so that you can reap five days in your calendar without anything scheduled. You don't sow financially on a Sunday or into a local church so that you can get a down payment on your car that you're trusting for. We don't sow to get the same seed back. There is something far greater that God wants to give us. And then lastly, just to say this, we don't sow out of greed or guilt. And as Jesus is addressing today, we don't sow or we're not generous for our glory, but we do so empowered by God's grace. And he has the wonderful truth about God's grace. God's grace is freely given to every single one of us. So therefore, every single one of us is able to be generous. 
God's grace is given freely to every single one of us. So living generously and giving into the kingdom is not a function of how much you have, but to what degree do you have a revelation of the grace and goodness of God? When you give to the needy, verse 2, when you give to the needy, when you, when you do kingdom or righteous works, do not announce it with trumpets. Don't be generous in a way that ensures everyone knows as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Those professional rule keepers that we were introduced to in Matthew chapter 5. I had this fascinating encounter with my doctor on Friday, which I think speaks to this very point that Jesus is making in, chapter two, in verse 2. He was Jewish. Well, he, he, not he was. He is Jewish. He hasn't changed his faith since then. He is Jewish. And um, we, were, we were kind of chatting about my uh, calling to, into the ministry and so he, he says to me, he says, you know, Steve, I had this fascinating conversation with my rabbi. Uh, and can I just say, before we go anywhere, this is not a judgment on, on anyone, but you'll see where I'm, where I'm going with this. He says, to, he says to me, he says, I, I went to my rabbi, who was a very thoughtful young man, and he says, uh, Rabbi, do you believe in God? Which, I mean, that alone is, is this question which I think is shock, perhaps shocking to even ask. But the rabbi comes back and he says this. He says, I, I don't necessarily believe in God but I believe in godliness. And this is the very point that Jesus is, is, is getting at. We, we can't be doing righteous things without knowing the righteous one. We can't, we can't be found doing kingdom things to try and earn the love and favor of God in order for the sake of being godly without knowing God who creates godliness within us. Remember, my position in Jesus determines... My practice here on earth. You're going to be sick of that statement before the end of the sermon. But I want you to be able to repeat it. My position in, in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, they, end of verse 2, they have received their reward in full. This is the most important part of, this, of these four verses. Jesus is not rebuking the Pharisees for wanting a reward. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they're looking in the wrong place for the right reward. So how should we give? How should we do kingdom or righteous things? Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How is, how is that even possible? You know, when you give to the need, when you, when you do kingdom things, when you do righteous things as a consequence of the transformed heart that you have, how do you, how do you do it in such a way that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing? I mean, it's like saying, don't think of the pink elephant riding on the unicycle. What are all of you thinking of right now? You're thinking of the pink elephant riding on the unicycle. I mean, it's, that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How, how, what is he getting at? I think what Jesus is trying to get at is, we need to, we need to so, be so generous in our lives that giving is second nature. Generosity must be a lifestyle, not a momentary act or a momentous occasion. It needs to be something that we do without even thinking. Most of us here in, in this room probably drive a car. You do things, you look at things, your hands do things, your feet do, does things without even giving it a second thought. I encourage you to, to drive with someone who is still learning, like my two daughters, or drive with someone who's just got their license. Our eldest daughter has just got her license. And you will very quickly realize that not everything comes 
as second nature. <laughs> they, by the way, if, if you ever need a place to take your children to learn how to drive, Rose Hill Cemetery on Western and Lawrence is an outstanding place to take them driving. But, but you'll notice very quickly that, that, that the, their left hand knows very well what their right hand is doing. They are not doing things in terms of it coming second nature. That's what Jesus is addressing right here. Most of you know my wife. Most of you know just how kind and compassionate and loving and gracious and hospitable she is, how empathetic she is. She, it's easy to love her because she loves so generously. And if you were to say to her, oh, Debs, you, you, you're, so, you're so sweet and, you, and you're so thoughtful and you're so, you're so kind and you're so hospitable, she'd probably be surprised that you're thanking her for it because it comes to her as second nature. Me, on the other hand, I, I have to sometimes schedule emotion into my calendar. I have, to, I have to put compassion in as a to-do on a Monday morning to make sure that I am reflecting it throughout the week. Don't judge me for what I'm about to tell you, but early on in our marriage, one of the biggest struggles we had was I was not showing love to my wife. I loved her, but I wasn't showing it. Don't judge me for what I'm about to say, but I literally had to put it into my planner. Make sure I am showing love to my wife. Now, you may think that is crazy. It's not because love wasn't important But at the time, love didn't come naturally to me. Expressing love didn't come naturally to me. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Give in such a way, even if it's hard, so that it comes naturally to you. And as an aside, research shows us that it takes three to four weeks of consistent behavior before something becomes a habit. So I'll just leave that as unsaid. Let's carry on. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving, look at verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When we are generous for the right reasons, for God's glory, not for my own, God promises to reward us. But as I said earlier, the reward or the fruit or the harvest is very different to the thing that we have sown. The kingdom works, the the righteous acts that we have done. If we had time, we'd have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is a passage where Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to give financially because the church in Jerusalem is going through a famine. And he lists some of the harvest that can be expected. Listen to this. In response to sowing seed, finances, Paul says that people will will reap a harvest of righteousness. We will reap whole lives that are robust in God and are wealthy in every way. We will reap bountiful thanksgiving to God. There will be worship and God's surpassing grace will be poured out abundantly over you. Do you know the story of of Barnabas? It's told in the book of Acts. I'm sure some of you have stumbled across that story. But but Barnabas was a a business person who, who sold property and gave the money that came from those sales to the apostles. And what did he reap in, as a result? He, rep, he reaped an incredible life of adventure with Jesus, planting churches and seeing people saved. But surely the greatest reward that we all long for and desire, the greatest reward that's available to us all, is hearing our Father say over us, Well done, my good and faithful son or daughter. That's the reward that all of us, I'm sure, long for. 
And as I said earlier, maybe we think that this motivation to, to, to give and to do things in order to get a reward isn't very altruistic. But as I said, Jesus is far more realistic about the human condition. We all want to be noticed. We all want to be acknowledged. We all want to be seen. But, but if our goal, if our, if our purpose in doing good things is simply to be recognized by others, to be given a thanks, which is nothing wrong with that, or, 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 or be liked on social media, or, or a comment left on Instagram, which again, well, maybe there is something wrong with that, but essentially there's nothing wrong with that. If that's your goal, can I tell you something? That's all you will get. That's all you will get. That's what this passage is. That is all you will get. But not only that, friends, how exhausting is it to live desperately desiring to be acknowledged by those around you? How exhausting is it quickly always checking your Instagram or or social media feed to see if someone has acknowledged the good work that you did? Or liked the fact that you have posted a picture of a cup of coffee and, and your Bible because you are now spending time with God. I'm being a little facetious, but <laughs> if your motivation is God's glory, not your own. If your, motiv- if your motivation in giving and doing kingdom things is God's glory and not your own, then th- this verse tells us there is a far greater reward waiting for you from our Father in heaven. At the end of the day, All of us in this room not only want to be noticed, but we want to be noticed by our Father. We want to be seen by our Father. And this verse promises that we are. The problem is we're looking to others to try and find that and ignoring the fact that our Father in heaven is the one who's seeing us all the time. You are the Father's beloved. You are his favorite. His loving gaze is always on you. He sees you. And it's true of you without making it any less true of the person sitting next to you. I've got three minutes left. Let's bring this into land with a couple of two practical things that I want to encourage you guys to do this week. If you've got a journal or a smartphone, I want to encourage you to write these two, these two actions down because I'm probably going to start next week's sermon where I'm concluding today. So I want you guys to, to take some, do some homework if you are able. We've spoken about two things today. There's, there's been a, a part of today's sermon that deals with action and part of today's sermon that deals with motivation. Action, the things that we to, are, are to do, and the motivation, the reason why we do the things that we are called to do. So the action is clearly this. When you give... When you give, that's the action that clearly Jesus is putting before us. So I want to ask you to ask yourself this question this week. How does God want me to reflect his grace through my giving and generosity? How does God want me to reflect his grace through my giving and generosity? And I hope that it's become clear throughout the sermon that, that kingdom works or, or righteous works, whether it's generosity or prayer and fasting or reading your Bible or whatever it is, kingdom works or righteous works are a, are a function or, or a reflection of the grace of God. And so God's grace needs to feature in your giving. It's gonna, I'm going to say this. It needs to stretch you. God's super needs to come upon your natural. It needs to stretch you. If it doesn't stretch you, it's not, you're not tapping into the grace of God. 
So ask that question, how does God want me to reflect His grace through my giving and generosity? That's the action part of today's sermon. The second part is the motivation. And we've been speaking about the fact that when we do kingdom things, when we do righteous works or righteous acts, we do so for God's glory, not my own. We've spoken about this idea of Do you remember the phrase? My position in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. We've spoken about that a lot. My position in Jesus determines my practice here on earth. God is is fashioning. God's desire for us is Christ-likeness. So here's my challenge for you this week. I want you to ponder on this phrase that might sound a little provocative. And I'm going to give you a week to ponder it. I'm going to do my best not to answer too many questions about it because I wanted to provoke something in us. And we'll come back next week and discuss it a little further. So here's the thing I want you to ponder on. This statement that a friend of mine spoke over me this week, and it's literally rocked my world. Christ-likeness is a wonderful desire, but a horrible goal. Christ-likeness is a wonderful desire, but a horrible goal. And just because I can't help myself, I will just say a couple of things about that. But... (laughs) just to ease the discomfort in the room, I know, with that, with that provocative statement. But, but it's God's desire for you to be like Jesus. The desire that you have to be like Jesus mirrors God. It's there because it's God's desire for you. But God is the one who works Jesus in us. Our re- response is to trust Him. Sometimes we desire Christ-likeness but we come under this incredibly heavy burden to be like Jesus instead of allowing God to work Christ in us. So I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 and James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Christ-likeness is a wonderful desire but a horrible goal. Perhaps you are here today and you are burdened by the goal of Christ-likeness in the hope of being noticed or accepted by God. So those two questions again. I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes for a moment. I would love for us just to allow the Holy Spirit just to move among us. I'm going to read those two questions again. You know, I was... Holy Spirit... We just acknowledge that you are here. And we thank you that you are not limited to one or two particular responses to what you've been doing in our hearts this morning. We thank you that you are so gracious to continue to fashion Jesus within us. We thank you that in you there is, there is freedom And there is joy, and that your anointing, Holy Spirit, breaks the yoke, the yoke of performance, the yoke of works righteousness, even the yoke of of trying in our own strength to be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you to stir our hearts with faith. Faith. 
We invite you, Lord, to break off any heaviness, any performance. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw us closer to the Father and that you would reveal Jesus to us this morning. My prayer this morning for every single one of you here today, every single one of us, including myself, that we would be drawn closer to the Father, that we would be drawn closer to the Father. Some of you need to hear that the Father sees you, that the Father notices you, and the Father is pleased with you. Father, I pray that you would minister the truth of that in every single heart this morning. Help us to know your love. Help us to know your love. May we be freed by your love and empowered by your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just those two questions again before James comes up. How does God want me to reflect his grace through my giving and generosity? And are you burdened by the goal of Christ-likeness in the hope of God noticing or accepting you? Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.